Frank and Rebecca normally go to the 11 o'clock service, but they're here in this service today. I'm looking, looking, looking. Where are you? Oh, here they are, right here in front of me. Yay, we welcome you. Great decision. Appreciate that. And also, they gave kudos to uh, Tim Schulman. You know, Tim Schulman's on the First Impressions ministry, and when they first attended, they said, kind of greeted them, made them feel welcome, and looked for them thereafter, sort of took them under his wing. That's so important. That's a very important ministry. Really, we're all on the First Impressions ministry. We want to make people feel loved and welcome when they come here. That's so important, isn't it? Because, I mean, we can have clean bathrooms and fantastic singing, the preaching's above average, but if people don't feel loved and welcomed here, they're just going to go someplace else. But but we welcome Frank and Rebecca and uh, Alyssa as well and Andrea. They're not in this service, I don't think. Listen, Andrea, they're 11 o'clock folks. So having said all of that, we're in a sermon series called The Four Resurrections. We started on Easter Sunday with the literal physical resurrection of Jesus. That was the first of four resurrections. From that, flow three other important resurrections that we all participate in. I was talking about the second resurrection last Sunday. That's the resurrection of baptism. When somebody's buried in the watery grave of baptism and they're raised to walk in the newness of life. So today I want to talk about the third resurrection. I'm calling this one the spiritual resurrection. This one's a little more hard to understand, I think. Get our arms around a, a little more esoteric. So what I want to do today is ask and answer four questions here about our spiritual resurrection. First question naturally is, what is the spiritual resurrection? What are we talking about? What we're talking about is when we're saved, when we become Christians in baptism, that's when our hearts are regenerated. Our hearts are regenerated. Now, that word is actually used by Paul, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He said, God saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So there's your word regeneration. It comes from combining two Greek words, palingenesia, palingenesia. Genesia, you recognize the word genesis in there, which means born, and palin means again. So regeneration there literally is born again. So we're born again, our hearts are made new, and that happens in baptism. Remember, we're born again there by the water, right, and the spirit. Other language that is used is the language of being raised to life or the language of resurrection, Ephesians 2.4. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, and God raised us up with Christ. Again, Romans 6.3. We were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So when we're buried in baptism, God is applying the benefit of the blessing of Christ's death to our lives, paying the full penalty for our sin. When we're raised up out of baptism, God is applying the benefit and the blessing of resurrection, regenerating our hearts and giving us resurrected life. The Holy Spirit indwells us. He is a source of moral power for us to live for Christ and to conquer sin in our lives. That is important because without the Holy Spirit, that's not going to happen. We are not going to conquer sin in our lives. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. So that's the description of the pre-Christian condition of every person. We cannot, on willpower alone, overcome sin. We cannot muscle our way through this. We need help. We need God's help. You know who gets this is addicts in recovery. 
Addicts in Recovery get this very well. Uh, this is the book for Narcotics Anonymous. They meet in the trailer back here on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. And you know the 12 steps. You've heard of those. Let me just read you the first three out of this book. All right, number one, we admitted that we were powerless over our addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. That's for us. That's just like admitting, I'm a sinner. I can't manage this sin. I can't beat it. I can't conquer it. We have to come to that point. Number two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That's a person who comes to believe in God. For us, comes to believe in God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And then the third one of 12, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. For us, that's repentance. We're going to turn ourselves over to God and be baptized into Christ so that we can access His power. Sometimes people put that decision off. See, I know I need to be baptized, but i got to get some things straightened out first. I need to quit my drinking and my drugging and my womanizing, and I'll, and I'll get right, and then I'll get baptized. That's totally backwards. That's like a person with a deteriorating heart condition who says, you know, I'm, I'm going to run a marathon first, and then I'll get the heart transplant. That's not going to happen. We get the heart transplant, then we can run the marathon. Not, I don't know why anybody would want to run a marathon. But having said, you understand the point. We need God's power or we're never going to defeat sin to begin with. That's number one. That one's pretty straightforward. All right, question number two. I actually have never heard this question answered, I don't think, in the sermons that I've listened to before. Question number two, is it just me or is it hard to be good? Is it just me or is it hard to be good? Apostle Paul says, Romans 7, 15. This is the Apostle Paul. I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. So is it just me? The answer is no. The short answer. It's not just you. It is hard to be good. Now, perhaps I should define what I mean by being good. I mean obeying God's law. Obeying, there's lots of laws in the New Testament that we're obligated to obey. If we're not comfortable with the word law, then obeying God's will. It's hard. It takes Effort. It takes work. Now, let me ask you some questions here. Don't answer out loud. Is it, is it easy or is it hard for you to get up early in the morning, earlier than you have to, to read the Bible and pray? Is that easy or hard? Is it hard to give our money away, you know, to missions or to the church, to give away money? Is it hard to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you? Is that easy or is that hard? Is it easy or hard to turn the other cheek? Is it easy or hard to Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Is it easy or is it hard to forgive someone seven times, 70 times? Well, let's listen to the advice of the apostles here on what kind of work ethic we can expect of ourselves as Christians. Peter writes, 2 Peter 3.14, try as hard as you can to be without sin and without fault. Hebrews 4.11, let us try as hard as we can to enter God's place of rest. Hebrews 12.14, work at living a holy life. Work at it. 2 Peter 1.10, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. 2 Peter 1.5, make every effort to add to your faith goodness to goodness knowledge. Romans 14.19, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Ephesians 4.3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of effort. 
Even, the, even those who are in recovery, after they've turned themselves over to a higher power to God because they can't manage their lives, still have to work their program. Still work the program. We are working a program, so to speak. The reason I camp out on this for just a minute or two here is because every once in a while, you might encounter a teacher or read an author who suggests that they have found a secret sauce of Christianity. And because of what they know, what they learn, or what they do, they don't struggle with sin. They don't struggle with temptation. Temptation is not that tempting to them anymore. They're just living above sin. They're going with the flow. Things are easy for them. I have a book in my library. This is exactly the thesis of this particular author. And when you see that or you hear that, your spidey senses should start tingling. The red flags should go, should go up. Well, wait a minute. What do you know that the apostles didn't know, that Peter didn't know, that Paul didn't know, the author of Hebrews didn't know? What do you, are you saying you don't have to work at it? So when a, when a Christian, and sometimes especially a new Christian, hears this, they might become disillusioned say, what's wrong with me? He's not having to work at it. I'm having to work at it. What's wrong with me? Nothing's wrong with you. It is simply challenging and hard. All right, so that's the answer to that second question. First question, what is the spiritual resurrection? Regenerated hearts, we have the Holy Spirit, an internal source of power. Second question was, is it hard? Yes. Third question follows the second. The third question is, why? Why is it still hard after we've been baptized to be good, to live this holy life? Why is sin still so tempting to us? Why are we still, as Christians, struggling with hurts, habits, and hang-ups? Because, so... Like we said, here we are. We've been baptized. Our hearts have been regenerated. They're new. We've got the Holy Spirit in us. We're living that resurrected life. This should be easier. Why is it? You ever wondered about that? I wonder about these things. Okay. Well, here's a part of the answer, and I'm sure there's more than one answer to this. Let's look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 7. And notice the capitalized words. I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my body parts. Who will set me free from the body of this death? All right, notice those capitalized words are all up there. Body, flesh, body parts. There's three different Greek words that are used there to communicate those ideas. Sarx is the word for flesh. Soma is a word for body. There's a word for body parts. I forgot what it is. You don't even care. But they're all in there. Now, here's the thing. So our hearts have been regenerated. Our spirits have been raised from the dead, so to speak. But our bodies, not so much. Our body has not been regenerated. Our body has not been renewed. When does that happen? Well, it happens when Jesus returns and we're resurrected and we get new bodies. I'll be talking about that next week. But that hasn't happened yet. And then those new bodies, the Bible says, will be spiritual, uncorruptible, no sin, but until then, we have to make do with these bodies. And these bodies are tainted in some way with sin. 
Now you might say, okay, well, what is, how do you, what meaning do you invest in that word body or flesh? And some say, well, it's our environment that we grew up with. It's what we learned in our family of origin. Maybe some of the influences that we came under. Maybe that's all part of it. But we need not look any further than the literal definition of a body and body parts. There's something about the physical body. Hey, when I was a kid, we went to camp every summer. We went to church camp for a week or a couple of weeks. You ever go to camp? And at our camp, we had a lake. And in the morning, we'd have a couple of classes. And then we'd break for swim time in the lake. And in Florida, North Florida, you've got you to swim in the morning because almost every day there's lightning storms in the afternoon. So we swim in the morning. And then we come back, and we change into dry clothes, and we eat lunch. And in the afternoon, if it was clear, we'd have another swim time. But you know what? Our bathing suits, our swimsuits, had not had time to dry out yet. And we, only, we were kids, and we only took the one swimsuit. So we had to get that wet swimsuit off the line and put on the wet swimsuit onto our dry bodies. You remember what that feels like? Oh, Yuck! It's cold, it's clammy, it's heavy. And I think about our, our redeemed and renewed spirits, we're still stuck in these bodies, like a dry body in a wet swimsuit that just kind of drags you down. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we grow weary in our present bodies. We long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. We will put on heavenly bodies. We won't be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. We want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. We're groaning in these bodies, all, all kinds of different reasons. Some of us are literally groaning because we have our aches and our pains and our physical problems. We're getting older. I don't have to convince most of you about that. But also because of the, you know, we're struggling with the sin. And in this process we're going through, this this process of becoming more good, of becoming more obedient, becoming more like Christ. The theologians call it sanctification. Sanctification is the progressive process of becoming holy. It's gradual. It's progressive. It lasts our entire lives as Christians. In this process, we will continue to fight and to struggle because we're spirits in bodies. Paul writes in Galatians 5.17, For the desire of the flesh is against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in oppositions to one another in order to keep you from doing what you want. So that's the reason why. The question was, why, why since we've been baptized, we've got the Holy Spirit, and our hearts have been regenerated, why are we still struggling? Well, it's not like before we were Christians. We do have an inner source of power, but still, we're not where we're going to be when we get our redeemed bodies. That's why. That's why. There's where the conflict is. Fourth and final question. All that being said, how can I lean into the Holy Spirit? How can I lean into the Holy Spirit? Now, let's put these two verses up here. I want to juxtapose two verses, two passages, one from Romans 7, one from Romans 8. Okay, I've got the Romans 7 here on my left and the Romans 8 on my right. Romans 7. I don't really understand myself, Paul says, for what I want to do, what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But then we get over to Romans 8. He says, if by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all 
who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. It's almost as if we have two paradigms up here. And these are just selected passages from Romans 7 and Romans 8. This really characterizes both chapters. Over here, Paul has had this experience of being living in Romans 7. The things he wants to do, that's not what he does. The things he doesn't want to do, that's what he does. He can't seem to string together a winning streak over sin in chapter 7. Then we get over into chapter 8, and there's a transition where Paul says, but if by the Spirit we're putting to death the deeds of the body, the flesh, and we're walking by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, then we have victory over sin. So here's a different paradigm. We have all probably spent time in our Christian lives in both chapters. We could, there's probably not a person in here who couldn't have written what Paul wrote in Romans 7. We know what that feels like. And we probably knows what it, we know what it feels like to be in chapter 8 as well and have a nice winning streak and see I'm walking in step and in tune with the Holy Spirit. It's great. So I would suggest that what we're striving for is to have Romans 7 be the exception in our lives, the embarrassing exception. And we want Romans 8 to be the rule of our lives. As a rule, we're living here in 8. This over here is the exception. We want less 7 and more 8. That'd be a good t-shirt, wouldn't it? Less 7, more 8. Less 7, more 8. And so my question is, how do we lean into the Holy Spirit? How do we lean into Romans 8 over here? Let me read you a paraphrase, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the words of Jesus. He writes, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I like that phrase, the unforced rhythms of God's grace. Sometimes we talk about connecting to the Holy Spirit as that power source. So it's, it's a fitting metaphor. We do need to connect to the Holy Spirit. He's there. Like you plug a socket into a, or you plug an a, a, a extension cord into an electrical outlet. Plug into the power. It's okay. I prefer the idea of rhythms of the Holy Spirit. Simply because not only is the Holy Spirit a power source, He's a person. He's not a battery. He's not an electrical outlet. The analogy is fine as far as it goes, but he's a person. So we want to lean into the rhythms of the Holy Spirit. I used to go to the farmer's market often, the one that's in Fort Pierce. I I buy honey and I cook with honey, so I need a lot of honey. So I would go there, and the farmer's market there, if you've ever been to that, that one, they usually have live music, and people come, and they set up chairs, lawn chairs, and they're listening to the band playing. And they've got a little open space in front of the bandstand. When I was going to regularly, you'd, you'd know who the regulars were. And there was an elderly couple 
they were regulars at the farmer's market on Saturday mornings. And we're sitting around, we would sit around and be listening to the band, and they, they liked to dance. They would get up in that space there, and everybody's sitting around, and they would, they would do their dance. They would dance the cha-cha, and they would dance the rumba, and they would dance whatever dances. And every once in a while, he would even dip her down. And we were all holding our breath, don't drop her, please don't drop her, buddy. He never did. He got, picked her back up. But you could tell, you could just tell by watching that this couple had been together for decades. Now, he led, she followed, and they knew each other's rhythms. And they were in sync. Now, I wonder if we ought not think of the Holy Spirit like that. We're doing a dance with the Holy Spirit. He's a person. Uh, he leads, we follow. And we stay in sync. And we stay in rhythm. The rhythms of God's grace. What are they? I'm not going to talk about those really today. I got I to push pause right here. Uh, and I, because we're about done for this morning. And I've got one more sermon in this series, a resurrection series, as I said, next Sunday. But after next Sunday, the following Sunday, I'm going to circle back around. I'm going to start a new series called Rhythm. And it's going to be about how to stay in rhythm with the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, too, every, anybody who teaches on this is going to say, too, the first two are just known and they are true. It's being in the Word and being in prayer. Those are foundational. That's the bread and butter. If we're not in the Word and we're not in prayer, we're not in rhythm. We have to do that. And I'm sure that most of us are, and we do. But there, there are others. There are others. And we want to make sure today that we're in rhythm, and He's leading, and we're following. And although there may be a dip, every once in a while, He's not going to drop us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have regenerated our hearts, renewed our spirits, given us an inner source of moral power so that we can live in eight and hopefully rarely visit seven. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.